0: All right, so we are back in 1 John chapter 2. It has been a while since we've done anything in this series on the book of 1 John. That's because we've been going on vacation, having a good time this summer. God's been good. He's blessed us that way, but I'm glad that we're all back together. So in 1 John chapter 2, we're going to pick up in verse 25. We kind of recapped a lot the last time. I preached in 1 John. We recapped the previous message because I felt like there were some things left out. And so we didn't really get too far into this particular sermon because I needed to cover those other things. So we covered one point. So if you're following along, you're listening to this whenever we put it on our podcast, uh, the first point in the notes, which we will upload if we haven't already done so. I don't know if we already put anything up there. It don't really matter. Yeah, well, we'll put it up there soon. But anyways, the first point will be maintain and don't deny your worthy labors for God. So we talked about how if you if you downgrade or uh, de-estimate what you do for the Lord, if you feel like you're missing something, then you might look elsewhere, and that could open up the door for you to be deceived by false doctrine. And it could also lead to a lack of assurance. So we need to understand what being in fellowship with God looks like. A lot of people get really anxious about it. I've been anxious about that in the past. Is God pleased with me? And our way of understanding that shouldn't be that of a slave to a master. Of course, I willingly put myself under the sovereignty of the Lord. And I'm a servant. I'm a bond servant of the Lord. But that's not the exclusive analogy in Scripture to describe our relationship with God we serve the Lord, we serve Him willingly because we're His children. And the adoption of Christians, the regeneration or being born again of Christians is the most fundamental aspect of our relationship with God, and everything flows from that. And so we need to understand that to be in fellowship with God as children, okay, it's not based on works, okay, it's founded on grace, but as a member in this gracious relationship with God he does have things first to do he has doctrine that he wants us to hold firm to and to not abandon and we talked about that doctrine already it's highlighted again and again throughout this book of 1 John it's the identity of Jesus as god of the flesh salvation is a free gift it's not something that you work for jesus was not just 100% god he was also 100% man he wasn't just an illusion Christ is not a spirit that came upon the human Jesus. All this stuff that the Gnostics were teaching was false. And so we need to have sound doctrine. We know what those basics are. And loving one another is how we put our faith into action. So it's quite simple. If you want to have fellowship with God, believe sound doctrine. If you say, well, I already believe sound doctrine, good for you. Now, love one another. Love your brethren. And if you're doing those two things, then you know that you're in fellowship with God. Now, it is possible for you to not do those things and be out of fellowship with God, but that won't change your relationship with God. So again, our relationship is based on grace, but fellowship extends out from that to, again, holding on to that doctrine and applying the love that God has put in our life in our relationships with other people. And so that was what we talked about last time. We talked about it more than that, but that's the gist of it. So that's verse 24. Let's look at verse 25, and we'll move on to our second point. So... 1 John chapter 2, verse 25. And this is the promise that he hath promised us, even eternal life. This is a pretty significant verse. Uh, the Greek term here used for promise. It sounds kind of similar to the word for evangelism. You know, evangelism, it's euangelion. And this one is epangelia. And so the difference may seem subtle, but epangelia means promise, literally, as it's translated here. And this is the only place in John's writings that it's used. Now, don't quote me on the other writings of the New Testament, but in John's writings, this is the one place that the word promise is used, this particular Greek term. So it's a pretty important term. And I think that the reason that this verse comes after verse 24 is because he's appealing to their knowledge of a relationship that they already have with the Lord. Oftentimes, we'll do that with one another whenever maybe our kids are acting up. We'll say, listen, you're our children. Okay? We love you. And you know better than this. So don't do it, right? So we appeal to that knowledge they have of the relationship that exists between us. And the the relationship that exists between us and God is something that he's appealing to here. He's saying that You have this promise. You've already accepted this promise through faith in Christ. I mean, we know that because earlier on when he talks about how they're little children, uh, he talks about the fathers, he talks about the young men, he's highlighting the different aspects of this family of God, and he says they've already overcome, their sins have been forgiven, they've known the Father, so they've already been saved here. So when he says this is the promise that he has promised us even eternal life, I think that what he's saying is you have these Gnostics They're coming in and they're saying, you're not in fellowship with God unless you listen to us. If you want to be accepted by God, you got to believe what we're telling you. And perhaps they were also very legalistic. There's good reason to believe that they were all about the law, keeping the law. And so you don't know the right thing about Jesus, and you're not keeping the law, so you're out of fellowship with God. And if you want to have fellowship with God, you got to listen to us. And one of the principal things that they were teaching that John was really bothered by was they denied that Jesus was the Christ in the flesh. So they believed that Jesus the human was just a man who had the Christ spirit. So Christ is invisible, intangible, comes upon Jesus, and then leaves Jesus later on at the cross. So he comes on Jesus at baptism, and then he leaves Jesus at the cross. So that's what Gnostics were teaching. It was called Serenthean Gnosticism because it was taught by a guy named Serenthus, and apparently Serenthus lived at the same time as the apostle John, And John, in in one tradition, was in a bathhouse, and Sorenthus was in there. And when he found out Sorenthus was in there, he ran out of the bathhouse and said, we got to get out of here because God's going to bring down the roof on this house, and I don't want to be in it when it falls. And so apparently him and Sorenthus definitely didn't get along. And we already talked about how John was the last pillar of the apostles that was still surviving. And so we see heretics becoming more emboldened by the fact that you don't really have the apostles around anymore. The last one here, John, he's very old and frail at this point. But uh, John is spending these last years of his ministry to whip out some really powerful writing here. And so he's warning the people that uh, this lie that's coming may sound similar to what you've heard. You know, they use the same jargon. They talk about Jesus. They talk about Christ. They talk about Messiah. Uh, they talk about holiness. They might seem like they're not pagan. They're not heathen but they're theologically bankrupt. And what you have is eternal life. And how do you have eternal life? Where does it come from? It comes from you believing in Jesus as the Christ. And in verse 22, he says, who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? That's a lie. So he's saying to them in verse 25, God has promised us eternal life through faith in Jesus. You've already placed your faith in Jesus, right? Okay, so then you have eternal life. So what these people are trying to get you to do is to de- deny the very Jesus, the very Christ, who gave you eternal life. Why in the world would you think of doing that? How could you think of doing something like that? So again, this is a why would you do something like that, considering the life that you have in Christ. And so that's really what gets me, guys, before you know, I make a decision to sin, if I decide not to. One of the reasons why I don't is because I'm thinking of the promise that God has given me in Christ. If I'm tempted and I stop and I say, wow, I'm thankful that Jesus has saved me. He's given me eternal life. I don't need to do this because he deserves better than that. He's my father. Uh, How could I betray him? It's similar to the way we might think of our loved ones. Like, how could I do this to my wife? How could I do this to my kid? How could I do this to my best friend? And if we would use that reasoning when it applies to our human relationships, how much more with our relationship with God and so verse 25 here is a reminder that since they had received eternal life by believing in Jesus as the Christ, they needed to continue doing that. And if they denied that Jesus was the Christ, that they believed in the heretics, which is possible because he says here, you're abiding in the Son, you're abiding in the Father, but it's a choice to remain. You're doing good right now, Okay. Don't deny that you're doing a good job. These people are telling you that you're not doing a good job. You've got to listen to them. Now, I'm telling you you're good. Where you're at right now is good. You've overcome the wicked one. You're holding on to good doctrine. You're loving one another. Good for you. Stay the course because Jesus has already given you eternal life, and he deserves that from you, and you ought to be thankful for it. And I think that when we really recollect what Christ has done, we certainly are thankful. and can't come away from that thought without being grateful for what he's done. But another thing, guys, and, and I don't want to read it the text, but I believe that God's word is so rich that in some cases, God chooses to use certain words that can be applied in more than one way. And I could give you examples of this. One is on my mind right now. Uh, it's in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus, when he's talking about the end times, he talks about uh, being watchful when he's talking to his disciples. And Paul uses that exact same language to apply to the rapture. But whenever you're looking at Luke, it doesn't seem to be talking about the rapture. It seems to be talking about the Jewish believers that are in the tribulation. And they need to be watchful. They need to not buy into the lies that the Antichrists are going to spew because there will be many Antichrists all under the head of that you know chief one, the beast. Lots of false prophets. And so he tells them to watch and to persevere. So that way they will survive to the end of the tribulation. And when Jesus comes back, he will reward them for their faithful perseverance. And so that's how it's used in Luke, but the same terminology is used in Paul and it's used differently. Uh, But I can't help but wonder when Jesus wrote those words or rather when he spoke them and they were later written down. But whenever those words were first communicated to the disciples that Jesus who inspired scripture, who wrote it down because he's God, if he knew that, It's going to apply in different ways depending on who you are. If you're a member of the church, when you're listening to Paul, being watchful okay, means being faithful because the rapture could happen at any moment. And when he takes you up, you want to stand before him confidently and not ashamed. But when he's talking to these Jewish believers who are not going to be awake when the rapture happens, okay, spiritually speaking, they're not going to be believers. There'll be a great revival following the rapture. When he speaks to those people, that audience... The words have a different meaning because they've already missed the rapture. There's not going to be multiple raptures. If you miss the rapture, you're in for the tribulation. It's going to be seven years long. And so I think that God in his wisdom and his design, when he gives a scripture, oftentimes there are layers there. And the reason I go into all that is because here when it talks about eternal life, the promise that we have an eternal life, I don't think it's just limited to getting saved. Obviously it is in the sense that when you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life. The promise of God holds true. But doesn't God also promise us more if we are faithful, if we persevere in our faith and we apply that faith in our lives as we love other people? I think that God does offer us life. I think God can only ever offer life to those who are obedient, whether the obedience comes in the form of making that first decision to repent. The rest of the worlds you know, they're thinking a lie. They're believing a lie. They're willfully ignorant. The first act of obedience that God enables through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the drawing of the Holy Spirit, is to simply say yes and say, I believe God. I don't believe the lie. I don't believe Satan. I don't believe the God of this world, the Prince of Darkness. I believe the Word of God. That first act of obedience is what opens up the door to God giving us eternal life. We're born again. We are justified. But do we stop there? No, of course not. We keep going. So I think he's promising abundant life. And I think the only way you can have that abundant life is when you are In fellowship with god in uh chapter one verse four it says and these things we write unto you that your joy may be full isn't that life and don't we use that word life or living often to refer to joy you ever heard somebody say man this is living or that's not living that's not a good quality of life well it's not a good quality life for a christian if you're out of fellowship with god right and he promises you eternal life now what does eternal mean well it means everlasting right it's literally translated that way in John three sixteen in the King James. Sometimes it's everlasting. Sometimes like here, it's eternal. Uh, so the question is, what's the difference between them? Well, eternal refers to an out of this world life. It refers to God's sphere of existence. I mean, guys, this is above and beyond anything uh, that even the angels have experienced. There's nothing in the Bible that says angels have eternal life. Now, will they live forever? Sure. Will the devil live forever in the lake of fire? In a sense, he's going to continue to exist forever. But do angels have eternal life? Not apparently. Apparently eternal life is something that the children of God receive. And the angels don't receive adoption. They're not born again. So we, in a very special way, being made in God's image, unlike the angels, we can experience the eternal life of God. This life of God that's like above and beyond the universe. God exists outside the universe, beyond the veil. God is this self-existent living being the living God, as he's often called in the Old Testament. And that life, that eternal life stored in him, we partake of that when we're born again. This is, of course, very mystical sounding. It should be (laughs) because the Bible is very mysterious. It really is because we're talking about a supernatural God. So it is talking about life from above. And when you go to John chapter 3, it talks about being born again, but some translations say born from above, which isn't. I think this is one of those occasions where John, or Jesus, rather, when he first spoke it, Intentionally left it to where it could be either or both because they are synonymous. This life that is with God that is above and beyond in another realm, it is also eternal in the, in the temporal sense. It keeps going on and never ends, right? So it's both everlasting and it's beyond this world. And it is everlasting because it's beyond the world. And I know that sounds kind of weird in a way, but it's really exciting and neat when you think about it. But this life that we have of God that is unique and that's supernatural that even angels can't participate in, animals don't participate in it, and unbelievers don't participate in it, we can experience that through fellowship with God. And that's why in verse 4, he wrote this book for our joy and, of course, for our future reward, which we'll get to more in uh, verse 28. But I do want to read from 2 John verse 8. if you want to point someone out a verse that teaches rewards doctrine clearly, like the clearest verse in the Bible about rewards that I can think of, is probably 2 John 8, and it says this look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought but that we receive a full reward, notice wrought, wrought means work, investment okay, it's like y'all putting so much work into your art your pottery not for a while, okay but what, hap- what happened whenever uh, your kiln got too hot? Huh? Yeah. All right. You lost some work that you wrought, right? Yeah. yeah, it was a bummer. So what John's saying here is look to yourselves so that way you don't lose that which you've wrought, but that you receive a full reward. And he's saying, me too. He said, we. He said, we too. I mean, even Paul, guys, it's so encouraging to know that... Uh, they were not like often Roman Catholics portrayed them, the saints, you know, like almost godlike beings that, you know, they're not like that. Paul was a man who said, listen, I'm running the race, okay? I'm running it with as much endurance as I can. I'm laying aside those weights. But he's saying it's possible that I could be disqualified too. And a lot of people, they've wrongfully interpreted that to mean lose salvation. It doesn't mean that at all. He's saying I want the full reward. So I'm leaving behind everything. Y'all come with me because I'm running, I'm going. And I don't want y'all to be behind me. I want y'all to be alongside me as we run this race together. So John is saying, look, we are all, as Christians, we're in God's family, and those that he was writing to were doing well. But look to yourselves that you don't lose all the hard work that you've invested in God so far. So continue with God, remain in God, and you do that again. As I've already said, keep it simple. Sound doctrine, loving one another. Now, the point for number two is treasure the unmerited favor that God has shown you. Treasure the unmerited favor that God has shown you. Treasure it. And that is the key to victorious living, I believe. If I'm constantly thankful then every single little thing I do is going to be more enjoyable, even simple things like drinking a cup of coffee. If I'm thankful that God has saved me from my sins eternally, that all those little things that he sends my way are going to be sweeter because of that. And it's going to, showing the way we act towards each other people are never more nice than when they are happy and thankful you know there are people who are like that who maybe normally they're surly, difficult to be around they always seem depressed well then they have a really really good day maybe somebody that they really liked told them that they liked them back maybe their relationship is going well maybe they're in love And they're so kind and they're happy. You ever seen those movies where they're like, you know, dancing around, they're giving people flowers? Okay, it's kind of cheesy, but... It's kind of like Ebenezer Scrooge after... Exactly, right, yeah. Something great happened to Ebenezer. And so he just couldn't help being kind to everybody again. If we are where we need to be, in the Lord's will, experiencing his grace, fresh every single day, being thankful, then people are going to say, why are you so stinking happy? Like it's almost shameful that anyone could be this happy. Like, you know, it's it's kind of funny though, because people will do, they'll be like, "What? why do you have a right to be so happy? And you could be like, well, I'm so happy because God has done this for me. And you know what's funny? Christians should look at you who don't really experience God's grace in a powerful way. Guys, sit down right now. Sit. She's doing something. Okay, sorry. Jed, sit down. All right. So Christians that perhaps they haven't learned the secret of this and they seem so downtrodden and depressed. When you tell them that, man, I'm doing good because God has been good to me, they should look at you and be like, but you've known this for a long time, haven't you? Shouldn't this be old news to you? How could the gospel ever be old news? It should be fresh every day. It's like that movie, God's Not Dead. There's that pastor and he is just constantly happy. The missionary from Africa. He's like, God is good. All the time and all the time, God is good. And that other pastor is kind of like, man, you annoy me because you're so happy. Like all the time. And at the end, he kind of learns, man, I've been I've been missing out, right? So Christians could definitely miss out. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But third point, and uh, that brings us to verses 26, 27. Uh, third point is he, the Spirit's anointing, not the false gnosis of heretics. Gnosis means knowledge. Heed the Spirit's anointing, not the false gnosis of heretics. And so, verse 26, he says, These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. Not that they're successful, but they are attempting to seduce you. They are trying their best to. And in verse 27, a long verse, but a powerful one, But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, you shall abide in Him. And this anointing is obviously referring to the Holy Spirit. When it says "teach you all things," that reminds us of John 16, when Jesus says, "When I send the Comforter, the Counselor, He will guide you into all truth. He will teach you uh, of things that I remind you of things that I have said. He will teach you of things to come. He will teach you all things." Okay, so John is applying this concept to all Christians. So, in an obviously special way, God, when He poured out the Spirit upon <laughs> the disciples, they were indwelt no more than we're indwelt, right? We're all indwelt the same, okay? But they received a gift that we don't have, okay? They had the gift of the apostolate. I don't have the gift of the apostolate, okay? God has gifted me with the ability to teach his word. Some people don't have that gift, and they're fine with that. They're like, God's given me this gift, and this is what I use to honor the Lord, some people are called to be evangelists evangelists don't really stay in one place evangelists in the first century would be essentially the same as uh someone who live or who lives in a different place than where they're from okay they they pick up and they go somewhere else to share the gospel that's basically missionary okay uh, and some people are called to be pastor missionaries you know they'll be a pastor on the field that they're living in now but point is the holy spirit gives us diverse gifts And that's the anointing he's referring to here. But here I think it's a little more generalized. He's talking about what they've received. They've received knowledge. They've received the truth. The anointing of the Holy Spirit essentially is what's already been referred to. You've been taught. You've been taught the truth. The Son and the Father are one. You cannot worship the Father unless you worship the Son. The Father's not going to say when you get to heaven, well, at least you worship me. You know, I know you didn't say that my son Jesus was fully God and equal to me, but at least you worship me. You know, I'll set you straight now, but I want you to know that, you know, at least you did something right. That's how some people, I think, maybe think of things. There are some ministries, and I hate to even call them that, but uh, they're cultic ministries, and you'll find them online. And they'll talk all about God the Father. He's God. He's absolute God. And they'll say they seem like they're worshiping him. They're giving him all the glory that's due him. But then they take Jesus and say, no, he's not equal to God the Father. He's not equal to him and they put him down lower. And it's like John was writing to those people. If you put Jesus down lower, and the Father, he regards that as an insult against him. If you don't glorify the Son, you are not glorifying the Father. And that's what those people are going to find out one day. They're going to say, but but we only said those things about Jesus. We didn't say those things about you, Father. We didn't say that you were lower. We, we, we estimated you as the highest being in the universe. We worshiped you. You didn't do that of my son, though, did you? And so that's very important to understand the unity of the Father and the Son. And that's part of the anointing they had received. And they're holding fast to that truth. They're holding fast to the incarnation, Jesus being in the flesh. So they have that anointing. And he says, you need not that any man teach you. These people are telling you that, oh, you need to learn. You need to sit down at our feet, okay, and get some instruction from us. Because you got it all wrong. He's like, no, you don't need any person to teach you. Now, this isn't saying, hey, you have the Holy Spirit. You can just go on doing what you want to do, believing what you want to do. No one can say anything to you. Okay, this isn't saying that we are above uh, instruction. It isn't saying that a Christian can't correct another Christian if that Christian is in error. That's not what it's talking about here. He's saying in this particular context, these people, they can't teach you anything. They're the ones that need to be taught. They're the ones that aren't learning. You have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It's abiding in you, and it teaches you all the things that matter. And it is truth and no lie. And even as it has taught you, ye shall abide in him. So we don't need to look for answers in anything beyond what we've received through the Holy Spirit's testimony in the teaching of the apostles. This is not talking about some uh, subjective mysticism where we can kind of meditate and God will just flow our minds with all these new revelations and and we can just write them down in a book and we can publish them. Back, oh, when, Jesus I, calling? <laughs> back when I was in college, I can remember running into... Uh, running into a a friend who was studying Mormonism in another class, I suppose, and uh, he had actually printed out for me some revelations from some fundamentalist Mormon pastor out west. And this pastor had actually written this stuff out, put it in chapter verse format, and was publishing it and calling it the book of something. I don't know what it was, but it contained prophecies about Japan and and all this different stuff. But it, it was... It was given the veneer of Scripture, made it it look like Scripture, but it was just this guy's stuff. That was all it was. Okay, That's not what the anointing of the Holy Spirit means. If we just open ourselves up to God, He can just give us all this new information. Not everybody received that gift of the Holy Spirit. Even the apostles, they weren't given every bit of information. The prophets weren't given every bit of information, were they? I bet you you could ask Paul a certain question. You'd say, buddy, I don't know. But you're an apostle. Yeah, God told me certain things to tell you, but He didn't tell me everything. He told me what I need to know and what I need to share with other people. The prophets didn't know everything. Peter said that. They didn't know the timing. They saw the, the suffering of Christ, the reigning of Christ, but like as far as the timing, when it was going to happen, they had a, a vague idea that it wasn't going to happen in their time. But they didn't know for sure when it was going to happen and how it was going to be laid out. I mean, when you take those two concepts, the suffering of Christ and the, the glory of Christ, it's kind of hard to put them together. And so they were kind of confused, but they... Took that information and they published it. It was God's word because they revealed what God had given them. And so we need to not look beyond scripture. In fact, in scripture, uh, 1 Corinthians 4 6 it says, uh, don't go beyond what is written. Don't go beyond what is written. That's not the whole verse, but that's part of the verse that I want to highlight. Do not go beyond what is written. And this is in the context of human teachers as well. The factions in Corinth. You got Apollos over here. You got Peter, I'm a Peter, and I'm a Paulus, and I'm a Paul. Paul's like, Don't be saying that about me. Right? You have some people who are pretentious enough to say, I'm of Christ, yeah. you know, to make them sound like you know, they're better than the others, right? But it, but it was all motivated by this desire to have some exclusive knowledge, exclusive access. And so, not to go beyond what is written is what Paul tells them in 1 Corinthians 4 6. But of course, I don't want to diminish at all the reality. Which is taught in Romans 8, 16, that yes, the Holy Spirit does speak inwardly. It says the Holy Spirit inwardly testifies that we are the sons of God. So I do not deny the Holy Spirit does that. But what I would caution y'all, and I caution myself, and I caution anybody, is that we can only know for sure what the Spirit of God is through the Word of God. That's why in chapter 4, which we will eventually get to, John says, test the Spirit's. You can know the Spirit of God in a certain way. Now, he talks particularly about cults, and so how to know the difference between what is true and what is a cult. So that's a very particular application of this principle. But the idea is you take what is revealed and you use that to test the Spirit. Anything that goes beyond that cannot be claimed to be inspired and of God. Now, there are certain things that we might permit and say, oh, that's allowed by the Scriptures, There's nothing in the scripture that naysays that, nothing that denies that. So that might be of God, and I'll give you that much. But make sure that you don't say you have to believe this, or else you're outside of God's will, because that's what sometimes happens. You have to believe what I'm saying, because if you don't, then you're outside of God's will, even though what I'm saying is not in the Bible. So that would be something like a tradition, From the Roman Catholic Church. A lot of these traditions, they're not contradicted by the Bible, right? So we could say maybe that's true. But if the Catholic Church elevates those traditions to the same authority as Scripture, then that's where they're wrong. I love tradition, and often I think Catholics uh, will accuse Baptists, particularly Baptists or Protestants in general, of not knowing church history. And I agree with that, because a lot of Baptists don't know anything about church history. And it's very good to study it. But I study church history from a lens of I have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. What is that anointing? Okay. Obviously, the Holy Spirit indwells me because I've accepted Christ. But how do I know the Holy Spirit indwells me? How do I even know that? When I got saved, did I like get filled with like some ecstasy? No. How did I know that? Because the Bible told me. Guys, when I got saved, yes, I was happy. But I've been happy on many occasions. Someone's put a cheeseburger in front of me, I've been happy. I've been flooded with joy when I had that cheeseburger put in front of me. Okay, that wasn't a supernatural experience. So, yes, I got a lot of joy from accepting Jesus. But how could I know that that was the Holy Spirit? I've had joy on a lot of other occasions. Mormons say they feel it in their chest. You feel it in their chest, right? (laughs) No, I I don't think. I I felt stuff in my chest, too, on other occasions. And it wasn't the Holy Spirit. (laughs) It was stress or anxiety. It It was after the cheeseburger. That's right. So we have to be cautious about that. Uh, How did I know? I knew because somebody said, hey, if you believe this, you ask Jesus into your heart, he's going to come into your heart. How do I know that? Because the Bible says so. And I was like, okay. And so I asked Jesus to save me, and I was like, he's there now. It's not I could feel him. He was there because I believe what the Bible said. So that's the anointing that we're talking about. The Holy Spirit's there, but how do we know he's there? The Bible says, and so now there have been times where I do, I do really believe that God has shown up in my life. I've had a hard time. I was depressed. I was anxious. I was in a dark place. And then God spoke to me. It's almost always through his word, by the way, whether it's something I hear on TV or some something someone shares me or I read it myself, but I did experience a peace that surpassed all understanding. So again, I am not diminishing that inward testimony of the Holy Spirit. But that is confirmation, not proof. What do we base our belief that the Holy Spirit is in our life on? Is it our experiences like that? Or is it something more sure? It's the more sure word that we have in Scripture. The more sure word of prophecy that Peter talks about in 2 Peter 1. That's the sort of thing that we base our faith on. And so our experiences are notoriously unreliable. We must remember that the internal witness of the Holy Spirit to us has to be tested with the written word. Um, I want to read you a quote real quick But R.A. Tori found this book the other day uh, in the store. So far, so good. Um, he's talking about evidence. So how can you know the truth? So, quote, The Word of God also gives us the faith we need to dispel doubt. Suppose you have a skeptic to deal with and you desire that he have faith. What will you do with him? To begin with, turn to John 20, verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might believe, sorry, you might have life through his name. Clearly, then, this book of John was given that through what is written therein, men might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing they might have life through his name. The Gospel of John is an inspired book of Christian evidence. Then find out whether the skeptic's will is surrendered or not. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. That's John 7, 17. After the will has been surrendered, just say, take this book and read it thoughtfully and honestly. Then come back and tell me the result. The result is absolutely sure. End of quote. So what Tori is saying there, and he says, if you keep reading, I've done this with many people. He says, I'll say, read this book. Is your will surrendered? Are you willing to have God teach you? Whatever it is, are you willing to have God teach you? Surrender your will to him and then read this book and God will show truth to you. And every single time when that person clearly wanted to know the truth, they came back after reading the Gospel of John and they had stronger faith. Or they had faith for the first time if they were on the fence about it. And I've known people like that. I have talked to students who they came into class and said, I am ready for God to tell me the truth, but I don't know what it is. Show me the truth. I want to know. And by the end of the semester, those people, without fail, they get saved. But it is the people that come into that class and you can tell they have not surrendered themselves to the idea that the God of the Bible is the true God. They're not ready to accept that authority yet. They have lots of reservations. Those people who are not willing to accept them, they're probably not going to. And so what that means is, guys, the ultimate proof that we have comes from the Holy Spirit speaking that truth to our hearts as we respond to his drawing. I'm more convinced of that than ever. I believe that if someone is shown all the evidence in the world, and I love evidence, and again, it's confirmation. It's like that; uh, those experiences of joy right? I just talked about that peace has surpassed all understanding. That is confirmation. It assures me. It encourages me. It builds me up in times of need. And I believe God gives us those graces when we need them. But that's confirmation. The ultimate proof lies in the word of God. And how do I know for sure that the word of God is indeed the word of God? Well, I can simply say that it's conviction, And whenever we're talking with someone, if they are choosing to remain blind and willfully ignorant, they're not going to accept it. They're simply not going to accept it. But if that person is willing to accept the authority of the Bible, then I believe the Holy Spirit's going to take over, and he's going to do all that's necessary to bring that person to faith. But again, it's a choice on that person's part, right? That person can close it off. It's like turning off a tap. They can say, nope, I'm going to quench the Spirit. I'm not going to let the Holy Spirit... Tell me what's what. That person is not going to hear the Holy Spirit. They're not going to listen. But if they're willing to let the Holy Spirit lead them where he wants them to go, is the Holy Spirit ever going to lead us into a lie? Never. He will always lead us into truth. And if we're willing to go where he leads us, then that will result in faith. And so heed the Spirit's anointing. That applies not just to before we get saved and then coming to faith, but it also applies to us as Christians. We should never turn off that tap, so to speak. Uh, Last point, then we'll wrap it up. Uh, Number four, manifest your new birth so you are confident at Christ's return. Manifest your new birth so you are confident at Christ's return. And so verse 28 says, And now little children abide in him that when he shall appear we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. So verse 28, when it says, not be ashamed before him at his coming, literally in Greek, it means to not shrink from his presence. It's like, again, a child be disobedient, daddy walks into the room, and rather than standing boldly and saying, I know that I haven't done anything wrong. Okay, I'm ready to talk to my daddy because I know he's going to approve of me. He's going to approve of my works because I've got nothing to fear. On the opposite of that, if you know that you've done wrong, and your daddy comes into the room, you shrink you shrink in shame. And so he's saying, abide in him as you're doing, continue as you're doing, that when he comes, because he can come at any moment, the coming of Christ is imminent, one of the clear teachings of the gospel of John and the book of Revelation, written by the same author. When he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him in his coming. I want to stand before Jesus and know that when he walks into the room, so to speak, I can say, I've done his will. Now, some people may say that's arrogance. You should always be humble. There's a difference between humility and fear. But should we be afraid of the return of Christ? No, we shouldn't. Because a lot of times people, they confuse the issues. Why are they afraid of Christ coming back? Maybe it's because they haven't completely grasped why they're saved. Maybe that's the reason. Maybe they're doubting because they place their assurance on their works and they're not placing it on the more sure word of God. Maybe it's they think that in order to please God, to make Him happy, maybe it's not about their salvation, but to make God happy in their life, there's a really long list of things that I've got to do. But is that what comes across when you read the Gospel of John? Or 1 John? If anything, when I'm reading this book, it seems very repetitive, doesn't it to y'all? Doesn't John seem very repetitive? Same things over and over again. Because it's very simple like that. It really is the same thing over and over again basic doctrine. Make sure you got that right. You got it? Okay, I'm going to say it again to make sure you got it. Love your brethren. You get that? I'm going to keep saying it. I'm going to say it a million times through this book so you get it. So those two things that you come away with is sound doctrine. Love your brothers. Love the brethren. Love your Christian family. And love the world. Love Love your neighbor. Absolutely. And when you do those things, you are in fellowship with God. It's that simple. So you know if you're doing those things, when Jesus comes back, you don't have to shrink from him in shame because you know that you have done what has pleased him and so you'll receive a great reward. In verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. This is something that I really enjoyed studying. I think it has more to do with uh, not reality per, per se, but reality manifested. So this is talking about who we are as born again people. You know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. This doesn't mean, of course, that anybody that does something good like telling the truth. doesn't mean that everybody who you know decides to not steal is born of God and say, that's not what it's talking about. He's in the context of Christians. He's talking to the little children. He's talking to the family of God. And he's saying, when you're doing righteousness as defined in the teaching of Jesus and what I've been talking about in this book so far, if you're doing righteousness then you are being a born-again person. You're being a born-again person. You can be a doctor, but yet not practice doctoring, can't you? You can be a lawyer and not practice lawyering. You can get the license, you can get the education, but not practice. Practicing being born-again is what's being referred to. He's saying he's righteous, You've been born again, so that means you have participated in his nature. You've received the seed of eternal life is what it's called in this book. You've received the the seed of eternal life. You're already fully capable of living a righteous life before God because he's changed you from within. Everyone that does righteousness is being a born-again person. And the key to you not being ashamed when Jesus comes back is manifesting that new birth every day. Every day, be a born-again person in your actions. You already had that in you but it's like the Holy Spirit. He's with you everywhere you go, but you always follow his leading? You got to walk in it. That's right. You got to take advantage of it. Having the Holy Spirit guarantees that when Jesus comes back, you're going to be with him because the Holy Spirit's a down payment, the guarantee that he's going to take us to heaven. It is a free gift after all, but the Holy Spirit's more than just the down payment. The Holy Spirit is the aid, the help, the comforter, the counselor, the anointing that helps us to abide in Christ. And, you know, lest there's no confusion, I want to clearly say that the Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit's a person, right? Sometimes we accidentally fall into that habit of talking about the Holy Spirit as a thing. But the Holy Spirit is a person, and He's with us, and He's there to help us. It's like me wanting to help my kids. They're trying to lift something up on you. You can't do that. I'll help you out and then you see them struggle because maybe they're stubborn and they don't want you to help them. No, I don't want you to do it. Like I've seen them try to cook something, okay? We'll be in the kitchen. They'll be wanting to do something. They want help, okay? It seems like they want to help. (laughs) Then I'll be like, you're not doing it right. Let me help you. No, I want to do it by myself. Okay, that's how we can do it in our Christian life. We can say, I want to do it by myself without the Holy Spirit's help. And if we do that, Then we're not going to be able to manifest that new birth that we've experienced already through faith in christ And if we're not manifesting that new birth then when we stand before the lord, we're not going to be standing confidently and boldly We're going to be shrinking back And I don't want to experience that before the lord I know that like the prodigal son i'll be accepted for all eternity I know that You know if I stand before him and i've got some dirt on me from this life He's going to wash all that away at the rapture i'm going to be completely transformed but uh I want to be able to look back on my life and say that I was being a born-again person in my actions. And if I do that, then I know the Lord's going to be pleased and uh, there'll be a reward in that. And that reward doesn't have to come in the form of anything physical. We usually think of a reward in something physical. It's like stuff. I'm not thinking about that. I just want to hear the words. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's it. If Jesus points to me and says, this is my boy and he did well. I know that he's going to say this is my boy, but if he says it with a smile on his face, with pride in his eyes, that's all that I care about right there. And uh, it's pretty simple. Like in the movie God's Not Dead, again, I'll quote from this. He says, it's really simple, though it's difficult. The Holy Spirit tells you what to do. It's simple, but it's sometimes hard to say yes. Let's say yes. And uh, let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for all the blessings that you've given me. And I pray, God, that something of what you wanted to communicate today came through in what I said. It's not about me, it's about you. And I pray that we'll all realize that it's not about us as individuals. It's about you and your kingdom and your glory. I'm just so thankful, Lord, you created us and saved us to include us in that plan. But again, be with all the prayer requests that I mentioned earlier. Uh, Our hearts go out to all the people that we talked about. And we pray, God, that you will use us to touch those people's lives and to make an impact on them for your name. And uh, we pray, God, that you'll be with us throughout this week. Uh, Help us to enjoy the life you've given us, every single blessing that comes our way, and help us, God, to not take those things for granted so we can be thankful and we can be willing as we walk with you. We pray you'll bless this food and help us to have a great time of fellowship. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.